This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Scientists, farmers, environmental advocates, engineers and politicians have wrestled with Everglades restoration for decades. Today on Intersection we're going to hear from WMFE environmental reporter Amy Green about her book Moving Water, which was published this week. It's about the efforts of environmental advocates George and Mary Barley to save the Everglades. We'll also talk about the WMFE podcast Drained. It's about the massive and costly Everglades restoration plan. The conversation was recorded at an event hosted by WMFE on Facebook Live last week. We're glad you're joining us this evening. We are going to bring in Amy Green, WMFE News environmental reporter, and esteemed panellists in a moment for a conversation about the massive plan to save the Everglades, and then we'll open up the floor for questions. But first, let me give you a bit of background on tonight's conversation. In the final days of President Bill Clinton's administration, Back in 2000, he signed into law a plan to restore the Everglades. 20 years and $17 billion later, the grandiose vision of reversing decades of environmental damage remains stuck in the swamp. Now tonight you'll get to hear from WMFE's Amy Green, who spent 10 years researching and writing a book about the restoration, and two of its most influential and unlikely proponents, George and Mary Barley. Her book, Moving Water, is due to be published March 2nd by Johns Hopkins University Press. And her research and reporting led to Drained, a WMFE podcast in partnership with the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. Joining the conversation this evening is Trevor Aronson. He is the executive director of the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. It's a non-profit news organization. We're also joined by Mary Barley, who is the founding director of the Everglades Foundation, a non-profit working to protect and restore America's Everglades. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Amy Green, Trevor Aronson, and Mary Barley. Amy, I want to start with you. Take us inside your book, Moving Water. The book tells the story of George and Mary Barley. George Barley was a wealthy Central Florida real estate developer and a very influential Everglades advocate. Now, his wife, Mary Barley, took up the cause after his death in 1995. We're going to hear from her in a moment. But first, Amy, what got you interested in this story? Right. So I first met Mary Barley back in 2008, and I was covering big news at the time in uh, this long story of Everglades restoration. The governor at the time, uh, Charlie Crist, uh, had announced this monumental um, deal uh, where the state would buy out U.S. Sugar Corp. And U.S. Sugar Corp. is the nation's oldest and largest sugar producer and the state would put the land toward Everglades restoration. And uh, U.S. Sugar Corp. is part of this large farming community south of Lake Okeechobee in the Everglades agricultural area. And so this was a huge story at the time. Uh, This was before I was a radio reporter at WMFE, and I started working on an article for Newsweek magazine about the Everglades Foundation, uh, which is just a, a powerhouse of a nonprofit in Everglades restoration. And I called Mary Barley uh, to uh, get some background information on the Everglades Foundation. And of course, Mary's late husband, George Barley, established the Everglades Foundation. And so um, during the course of this interview, Mary Barley told me the story of the Everglades Foundation and how it came about. And this, of course, was in many ways her own biography. Uh, She had been so, you know, closely and deeply involved in this. And I could immediately see um, that this was just a great story and that Mary Barley had led just 
uh, an extraordinary life. And so a few weeks later, I drove down to Isla Mirada in the Florida Keys, which is where uh, Mary Barley lives. And I did another article, a personality profile on Mary for the Christian Science Monitor. Um, and, um, And then a few years later, I called Mary Barley and asked whether she might be interested in me writing a book about her life. And she said yes. And you've had a sort of singular obsession with the Everglades. Amy, you and I have talked at length about this um, in the time that I've known you at WMFE. That's been a topic of conversation in the newsroom many times. Uh, What is it about the Glades that you find so fascinating? Right. So I talk about this um, a little bit in, in Moving Water and also in the podcast Drained and Um, You know, I I think I just have a very analytical mind. And for me, as I say in the podcast, the Everglades are kind of like this Rubik's Cube that I just I can't put down. It's like this puzzle. It's so complicated. Um, You know, you ask one question and it leads to another and another and another. Um, But really what got me hooked was this article um, that I did many years ago with Mary Barley Uh, For the Christian Science Monitor, I can remember uh, being in Everglades National Park with Mary Barley and a scientist for the Everglades Foundation, Tom Van Lent. And I can remember Tom telling me a story about the construction of a highway through the Everglades. Um, And this was back in the day. The highway was the first to give Ford Model T's access to Flamingo, um, uh, in uh, the Southern Everglades. And, um, and um, after the construction of this highway, um, they noticed that the vegetation on one side of the highway um, was changing and was different than it was on the other side of the highway. And, and over time, they figured out that, um, you know, in the Everglades, um, it's such a sensitive ecosystem that this highway had changed the course of water enough, you know, to dramatically change the vegetation of the ecosystem. And I just at the time was like, wow, this is incredible. And um, right then and there, I was hooked. And I just wanted to learn everything I could about the Everglades. Now, uh, Mary Barley, I wanted to bring you into this conversation because you've been involved in Everglades advocacy for 25 years. I mean, that's, that's a long time. That's, that's been your life for that long. Why are you so focused on it and what has kept you involved over all these years? Well, you know, we started, George and I were avid fly fishermen. We spent a lot of time in the Florida Keys. And when we came down here and saw what was happening to Florida Bay, we just said, we have to go look to save it. And that's exactly what we did. And then when he died in the airplane crash in 1995, on his way, he was actually going to an Everglades meeting in Jacksonville with the Army Corps of Engineers. And that was really the beginning of my Everglades journey. And, you know, I came to Florida 50 years ago. And from the first time I saw it, I loved it. And I thought, I am never leaving this place. And Florida Bay is still my favorite place. And I'm committed. I'm just committed to the Everglades. I always have been. I always will be. And it's because if you give up, you lose. And that's why I'm never going to give up on the Everglades. It's kind of a a hard thing to love, though, right, the Everglades? I mean, it's not a very hospitable environment to fall in love with. There's mosquitoes. There's kind of alligators that can get you, giant pythons. It's It's a pretty wild place. Well, yeah, it is wild, but then there's some 
incredibly beautiful places like Florida Bay. Florida Bay used to be like an aquarium. You could go out, drive around in your boat and look over and see sawfish, swordfish, tarpon, bonefish, any kind of fish you can think of. You know, there's 2,000 species here in the Everglades. You can, you know, there's photography, you can hike, you can bird, whatever you want. You can python hunt even, right? So whatever you want to do, whatever is your favorite hobby and whatever makes you happy, you can go to the Everglades and you can find it. But it's also, don't ever forget your drinking water too. Right, so a critically important uh, ecosystem, as Amy pointed out, and important for the, the health and security, I guess, of all Floridians. Uh, I want to continue this conversation uh, you know, about the book, Mary Bailey, but just before we do, uh, let me pivot back to Trevor Aronson for a moment. Trevor, you're, uh, a lot of what you do with the Center for Investigative Reporting is you're investigating kind of the, the things that people are doing, um, events. Is it interesting to, to work on a project where the main character is a place rather than a person? Yeah, I mean, you know, telling the story of a, of a place or an, a non-human being is obviously challenging from a narrative perspective, right? And I think, you know, that, that was the challenge um, Amy had in this podcast. Um, but I think, like, you know, you know what I think what Amy tried to do, and I think where we succeeded to some degree in the, in the podcast, is kind of showing that, you know, it, despite not being a person, the, the Everglades is this, this kind of character in itself, right? It's this enormous, enormous ecosystem with this crazy story of, of like wildlife, including invasive wildlife, like the pythons that Mary mentioned. Um, and I think it's just this, you know, iconic symbol of Florida. But I also think, and, and the reason I think Amy's reporting is so important is that, you know, I think for a lot of Floridians, they obviously know of the Everglades, and uh, but they don't really know what the Everglades truly is and what restoration has meant. And I say this as a native Floridian. I remember going on Alligator Alley on road trips with my parents when it was like one lane each way. And so I, I've, I've been for the, all of my life familiar with the Everglades, but, and I'm also well-read and I've read all these stories about Everglades restoration. But I have to admit when I started talking to Amy about this, this project and doing her reporting as a podcast, you know, I really felt like uh, I don't know like what it means to restore the Everglades, right? Like I've read a bunch of stories about it. Like where, what is, what does restoration look like and how are we restoring it? And how the how of the ways that we've changed the Everglades uh, are we doing now to like you know change it again? And I think that's where Amy's you know reporting is really important because I think so many Floridians take for granted that they know a lot about the Everglades, and I think actually very few of us really do. And it's such an important ecological system that I think you know Floridians really should know more about it. And I think Amy's reporting on the subject is a way of kind of educating a lot of Floridians about this this uh, hugely important part of Florida that they probably don't know as much about as they think. Still to come, more from WMFE's Amy Green about her reporting in the Everglades. Mary Barley talks about her ongoing conservation work and Trevor Aronson on what the podcast Drained reveals about the River of Grass. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to our conversation with WMFE environmental reporter Amy Green about her book on the Everglades moving water. She was joined by Florida Centre for Investigative Reporting Executive Director Trevor Aronson and Everglades advocate Mary Barley for a conversation recorded on Facebook Live last week. Well, let me come back to you for a moment, Mary Barley. What is it like having somebody write a book about your life? Well, I think it was pretty terrifying. It was very overwhelming. And, uh, but you know what, there's so many other people who deserve to be thought of and are are responsible for making this uh, restoration happen. It's not just me. 
It's about all of us, Amy included, who make a big difference in as we move forward and how Everglades restoration will be when it's finished. Amy Green, let's just dig into the writing process a little bit because uh, writing any kind of book is a pretty monumental undertaking. Um, and you spent 10 years working on it, researching it. What did you learn about it in the course of writing Moving Water? Moving Water is the first book to tell the story of George and Mary Barley. And uh, George Barley was just this dynamo of an Everglades activist who, um, at the time of his death, you know, his stature was, you know, probably on the level of the Secretary of the Interior at the time. He just was a torpedo on the issue. And he was really the first activist who was able to bring real resources to the table. You know, before George Barley, um, you know, there were many people engaged on that issue um, very passionately, but no one really with the deep pockets to go toe to toe with um, other political interests um, like sugar growers, big sugar, you know, as we say in the political parlance, who were just extraordinarily powerful in the legislature in Congress and who many saw as, you know, very reluctant uh, toward progress in Everglades restoration. George Barley, as you said, Matt, was a wealthy uh, real estate investor in Central Florida, very politically connected, and he was really the first to, who was able to bring those resources, bring those connections to the table on behalf of the Everglades. And unfortunately, he died very tragically in a plane crash in 1995. And after his death, Mary Barley, within weeks, really, took up his cause and in 96 engaged in a ballot initiative that was aimed at taxing sugar growers to raise money for Everglades restoration. And at the time, this was a political campaign that was the most expensive in Florida history. And, and in some ways it succeeded, and in, in some ways it, it was not successful. And today, Mary Barley remains very influential and very involved through the Everglades Foundation and the Everglades Trust which you may remember the Everglades Trust um, gave Governor Ron DeSantis a very critical endorsement as he ran his campaign for governor um, on an environmental platform. Moving Water also is the first book to really document the influence of Paul Tudor Jones in Everglades restoration. And Paul Tudor Jones is, he's a, a Wall Street tycoon, really. Um, and he was George Barley's best friend. And um, he almost single-handedly funded a lot of this very important political work back in the 1990s, the 96 uh, ballot initiative that Mary Barley led and um, uh, almost single-handedly funded Audubon's first Everglades position um, in South Florida. And Paul Tudor Jones did this while really shying away from media attention. And so that is another aspect of Everglades history that many people may not be aware of. Right. And I'm sure as a writer and reporter, somebody who has that much influence, but is a little bit media shy, I mean, that's that's got to be an interesting subject to write about. 
Speaking of investigations, Trevor Aronson, let me bring you back into this conversation. I mean, this is not the first project that you have worked with Amy Green on. You worked on stories about the influence of the sugar industry in Florida before. I'm wondering, just as you've watched Amy work on this particular project through the years, uh, reporting on the Everglades, what have been some of the most surprising things that have come to light for you about this place in South Florida? Yeah, I think the first project we worked with Amy on was maybe 2012 or 13. It was it was about money, uh, Big Sugar's political influence through through contributions, right? And, and again, I think this is another aspect of Florida that Floridians don't fully appreciate, which is you know the size and, and vast wealth of, of Big Sugar in the United States and its um, its willingness to put that wealth you know behind its political purposes and business causes. Um, and so I think. You know, I, I think what's interesting about the Everglades, and I think a lot of the interesting about Amy's reporting, is that it isn't just this story of, um, you know, this sensitive ecological environment that we have in many ways mishandled, right? It's a, it's a story about big business and the competing, uh, you know, the competition between kind of, you know, development and industry versus, you know, preservation and, and how we strike that balance. And so I think, you know, what attracted us to do, you know, this podcast you know, most recently was it, I really felt like it built on all of Amy's reporting over the last uh, last decade or so, which is it just, you know, in the media environment we're in today where, you know, there's so much pressure on reporters to do more and more stories every day. You know, that's not kind of a wealth of knowledge that you're often able to kind of tap into. And and so I, I think for that reason, that's why it was incredibly important for us to, to work with Amy on this project. I mean, to me, I mean, you know, some of the most surprising things really came from dreams. You know, as I, as I mentioned, I'd read stories about Everglades restoration for as long as I can remember. And I don't think I fully appreciated some of the kind of harebrained schemes that they'd come up with to restore the Everglades, like the, the aquifer pump and like pumping water down. It's just like, I, I was not aware of that. And, and so to me, like that was kind of one of the, among the incredible things that, that we were throwing these millions and millions of dollars at Everglades, uh, restoration and in many ways the people restoring the Everglades were kind of really like you know what's the cliche like they were building the airplane while they were in flight and and that's very much you know where we are today which to me was is striking I I I kind of came from this initially with the naive impression that the plan to restore the Everglades with all these millions and millions of dollars was was uh much firmer than it really is. Mary Barley I wonder if you know having a reporter work on a book about your life does that give you a, a kind of a new perspective on the work that you've been doing over the last quarter century? Uh, well, <laughs> I guess it does, actually. It's, it's a little embarrassing, actually. So I don't like to talk about myself and in, in that kind of way. But, you know, I'm, in, I'm just in awe of, like, the positive comments she's received from the public and her contemporaries on Moving Waters. It's amazing. You know, restoration is, a, is bold and it's an audacious undertaking, with many moving parts and numerous governments and agencies, and there's good and evil, like we've just been talking about. You know, it's what's amazing to me is that Amy condensed all that, those years of advocates to see into just a, like a little frank look back. And the look back for me has been, um, you know, it's a lot of things that I just put out of my mind. I didn't want to think about anymore. And, uh, and, and now it reminds me of it how difficult the fight is and how difficult it's going to be going forward. Thinking about that, though, Mary Barley, I mean, you're, you're still clearly very passionate about the Everglades, um, and, and obviously that spirit has not waned over the years, but sort of thinking about the work that's gone into it and the challenges that you've faced along the way, do you think, knowing what you know now, you would have 
blithely set out on this path 25 years ago? (laughs) I have no idea. I like to think that I would have, but I don't know. It has been um, very difficult at times, but then it's been so rewarding that why would you ever want to give up? Yeah, and I guess there's there's so many things about environmental restoration where the the, the hazards and the barriers seem so high. So I guess um, any kind of advance must seem like a, a pretty big deal. Yes, and if you really look around and, and study it, you'll find out that every ecosystem is exactly like ours. It has the exact same problems that the Everglades does. And if we can be successful, that's what's going to be the, the greatest gift we could give to the planet is if we are successful, then many, many other ecosystems will know what to do and how to do it. Amy, when you came back from from uh, the reporting that you'd done on your book, you essentially had a list of questions. You had kind of like a, a notebook full of ideas. And, you know, in the, in the newsroom, we, we like to bounce ideas off each other. And I remember distinctly having one conversation with you where you essentially just presented me with a, a list of things about the Everglades. And you're like, I want to do more reporting on this. Let's let's do a project. Just kind of walk us through what that process was like. Right. So, you, you know, my deadline for my manuscript was December 31st, 2019. And so 2019, I was writing pretty furiously. And by the end of that year, I was writing like I have never written in my life. And And there was a moment when I was on deadline with the book and I was you know, researching all this Everglades restoration stuff, and it's very complicated. And I was making a million phone calls, and I just I stopped, and I just I just I thought, this is really messed up. <laughs> and I I stopped, and I made a list of all the ways that Everglades restoration is messed up, kind of, you know, like climate change and some other things. And um, just a few weeks after that, I listened to a podcast um, from the, a very fascinating podcast from the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting and Louisville Public Radio called The Dig. And that's how I got the idea for Drained. And so we ended up doing a a four episode miniseries podcast uh, timed to drop in December 2020, which is the 20 year anniversary of Everglades restoration being signed into law. And we each episode looked at a component of Everglades restoration. We did one on water storage, one on flow, uh, climate change, um, and um, water quality. And, um, and, and so that was, that was how that came about. It was interesting to me, I mean, the, uh, obviously, and we, we discussed this a little bit before about how the Everglades is kind of like a personality in and of itself, right? It's like this living organism. It, it's um, it's kind of hard to wrap your arms around. I mean, it's, it's literally enormous, and it's this massively complicated system that you can't really grasp unless you spend a very long time researching it. Uh, but it was interesting to me also kind of reflecting on some of the, the sounds we heard in the podcast, I mean, especially, uh, you know, some of the political voices from from 20 years plus ago, like especially that speech that um, President Bill Clinton made in the, you know, the waning days of his administration. Of course, all eyes were on Florida at that point. This is 2000. And that was because we'd gone through the, the kind of um, election debacle of that year. But here was Bill Clinton making this speech, this kind of, you know, grandiose speech about how this project 
was going to save the glades and it would be he sort of referenced other um you know you know natural wonders across the united states and it's interesting to just to reflect how far we've come in those 20 years and just how intractable in some ways the problem is i mean all the money that's been poured into it and there's still much more work to do um do you kind of have a sense amy having spent this time reporting on it that that you that you feel like you know where this project is headed and, and what the next chapter might be it's very complicated and i would not pretend to be um uh, an environmental or, a, or a, a water engineer or anything like that um but you're right, Matt, you know, when, when this was signed into law in December 2000, no one had ever seen anything like this. You know, at the time, this was billed as the largest environmental restoration effort anywhere in the world ever. And today, it is still one of the most ambitious attempts at ecological restoration in the world. And so in many ways, no one has ever seen anything like this, you know. Uh, we the the effort is composed of 68 projects, and each project on its own is just monumental. You know, one of the most important projects is a reservoir um, south of Lake Okeechobee, and that plan has been altered um, a little bit through the years. But when construction first started on that reservoir, it was going to be the largest reservoir of its kind in the world. You know, they're building filter marshes, which are um, you know, human engineered wetlands and and they clean the water um, as the water flows through these wetlands, the vegetative tissues um, absorb the pollutants um, and over time the water flows cleaner. Um, and these are wetlands um, that are the largest of their kind in the world. So this is, you know, this is, this is, um, you know, something that really stretches the imagination in many ways. Mm-hmm. Trevor, you were talking before, or you alluded to some of the, the kind of mind-bogglingly strange, in some ways, ideas to to uh, solve some of the problems of the Everglades, including pump, pumping vast quantities of water underground uh, to try and deal with some of that runoff. And we also hear some sound from a, a kind of promotional movie that was made, you know, decades ago, right? And And... I wonder, Trevor, just kind of reflecting on this as a as a podcast producer, as an investigative reporter, what do you think about when you hear some of the you know the voices from last century when they were kind of just getting started on engineering this to suit human needs at the time? Yeah, I mean, to me, like that that the promotional video from the fifties or whatever it was, I mean, it, it strikes me as kind of like the old manifest destiny, right? This idea that like we as humans and Americans can just manipulate the earth however we want and, and we'll just, we'll be fine. It'll be fine. And it, and it turns out that I think, you know, obviously we didn't do a very good job, right? Like we, we drained the Everglades and allowed for development. And then we created a host of other problems that we are now grappling with through the last 20 years of restoration. But I think what was so interesting to me, you know, is that like that kind of arrogance, this idea that, you know, we can manipulate the earth as we want you know, is a lesson we didn't clearly learn from, right? Because one of the solutions, you know, proposed at one point was this idea of like pumping the water into the aquifer, right? You know, damn the consequences kind of thing, even though, you know, there would, that would have kind of clearly risked the drinking water quality of the aquifer itself, right? And so, you know, I mean, I don't, as just like Amy said, you know, I don't pretend to be an environmental engineer or, or someone who, you know, knows what that answer is, but I was just struck by, you know, how, you know, how badly, you know, 
uh, how, how many how many terrible problems we created through draining the Everglades, and that in many ways the solutions that we came up with, you know, raise questions about even worse problems that we might have in the future, or similar, or whether that we were just trading one problem for another. And to me, that was really fascinating. I mean, I understand that this is a this is a terribly complex problem, and it's it's difficult to kind of boil it down and point out some of these absurd plans. But at the same time, it's clear that you know we really haven't fully learned the lesson of you know maybe we shouldn't mess with the environment as as much as we as much as we did yeah it's interesting i mean i feel like you don't need to be an environmental engineer i mean obviously that would help to kind of give you a sense of just exactly what's going on here but we're living in florida right we're residents of the state and i think the thing that struck me one of the things that struck me about the podcast having kind of come to the end of the project and listening back to it is this really does affect everyone. I mean, you don't have to even live in South Florida to know that there is going to be some impact from what happens in the Everglades, whether it's restoration, whether it's, um, you know, the, if plans don't go quite right, because people keep moving to Florida, there's going to be a need for water and that need is not going away. And, you know, what happens in the river of grass, whatever happens in the next 10, 20 years is going to have an impact on all of us. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what, what's fascinating to me, obviously, is that, you know, I think anyone who's paying attention understands that Florida is in a very precarious, you know, situation with climate change, right? And the, the conversation that is often talked about, which is important, is, you know, sea level rise and, and what areas of the state will be, you know, habitable in the long term and how we can mitigate all of this. But the, the secondary conversation, which is this deals with it, which I don't think is happening enough, is, you know, you know, how, what is the drinking water supply going to be like? How is climate change going to be affecting that? You know, there may still be many patches of land to live on in Florida, but, you know, what we'll be doing for water at that point. Um, and again, which is why I was like, so, you know, my mind was so boggled by the idea of like pumping dirty water into the aquifer, right? Like, well, that's your idea for saving? I mean, because you're, you know, essentially kind of creating another problem. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think, you know, this, this gets us to the larger conversation of climate change, but, you know, I, I think, you know, the, Florida's ecosystem is so interconnected that, that these programs are really something that we should be paying attention to when we think about like the future habitability of our state. Mm -hmm. Mary Barley, uh, just thinking about that 20-year mark since the Everglades restoration plan was signed into law, what's your take on where we are now? And I'm wondering too, uh, do you reflect on what George Barley would think about all of this? <laughs> Well, you know, I think where we are now highlights how dysfunctional and transactional our government is. Uh, not only the political actors, but also a lot of the bureaucrats uh, who, can who contribute to the delays. And so, you know, the scale is staggering, but I still think that restoration can be achieved. And, and further to what Trevor said, I mean, water is our, our base, is our economic excuse me, economic basis in Florida is tourism mm -hmm. and water. If we don't have water, we don't have tourism. That means all of Florida, not just South Florida, not just the Everglades. And so we have to be thinking, uh, and, you know, Everglades is a huge ecosystem, but then we have to go up to the next, the next level and get out of the box and, you know, think big. You know, but it takes, to go back, it takes political will from all our governments, tribal, local, state, federal, and public participants to move these immovable objects. And George, <laughs> I think he would have been incensed at the slow pace and he would be demanding accountability. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Mary Barley, the Everglades need right at this moment? It needs the political will and funding. 
We need $725 million for the next four years from the federal government. We need an, uh, a matching fund from the state of Florida. It's a 50-50 partnership. And that is that would probably finish 90% of the projects. But you can't finish these projects with dribble and drab of money. You have to have, it's like a mortgage. You have to know that you can build the whole house or you can't even start it. And uh, so that is one of the one big problem with the Everglades, obviously, uh, you know, is how do we get the money, which is really important. And we get the money by having people like us demand that they do this restoration and they do it properly and they do it scientifically, not just for people, but they do it for critters and the environment too. Amy Green, um, what's next for you as far as reporting on the Everglades? I get the sense that the, the story the reporting isn't quite done yet. Right. Yeah. I just, I'm totally obsessed with it and I just, I can't help myself. I, I think I may have shared with you in the past, Matt, that, um, over the holidays, um, I took my uh, seven-year-old daughter down to the Everglades. She has been home with me during the pandemic and has uh, been hearing me work on the podcast and on the book. And, she said that she wanted to see the Everglades for herself. And so I said, okay. And, um, and my mother and I took her down to the Everglades and I just, you know, went to the library and was looking for some books for her and just got the idea for writing a children's uh, book for children about the Everglades. So I just kind of can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, giving us your feedback, and for being part of our listener-supported community-based station. If you'd like to make a donation to support our work and to strengthen independent journalism in your community, visit WMFE.org. Thanks so much again, and have a great evening. And you can watch the full Facebook Live conversation on our website, WMFE.org. intersection Still to come, the Orange County Regional History Centre has a new executive director. Pamela Schwartz, who was the chief curator at the History Centre, took on the role last month. Schwartz joins us to talk about how the pandemic forced a pivot to online exhibitions, building complex displays with social distancing, and what's ahead for the History Centre. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Pam Schwartz is the new executive director of the Orange County Regional History Centre. She's been the museum's former chief curator. Pam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The pandemic has changed the way people have had to operate because of COVID-19. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about how the History Centre has adapted during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely changed us in every way. And, you know, I think some of that is for the better. Uh, and some of that is obviously more difficult. So, uh, you know, one of the, the main things we had to make decisions about were our exhibitions. Of course, we have exhibitions so that people can come in to see them. And we had to really rethink that process. Um, for instance, uh, our Pulse five-year exhibition, uh, that was happening last June. And so we had to make the decision to go fully virtual with that exhibit so that, you know, because at the time we were, um, we were closed to the public. Upon reopening, uh, of course, we have had other exhibits like our Koei exhibition, um, but that really changed things for us too because we redesigned parts of the exhibit to enable safe social distancing. We implemented timed ticketing. You know, we built a cabin in the middle of the space. Try building a cabin when you have to social distance from your staff. 
<laughs> so, um, you know, we've, we've definitely had some difficult points, but, uh, you know, the, the time tickets and social distancing and putting uh, different things in place to make sure that our patrons and our staff both are safe uh, and well cared for was was just something we needed to do and, and that we, we rose to. So we continue to observe those and we'll do that uh, while it's necessary. But we definitely do look forward <laughs> to the time that we can sort of go back to um Museums as social spaces, you know, places for for discourse and conversation and for interacting with one another. And in, in the meantime, we have learned the power of going virtual. You know, some of our programs have have made it to people in several other countries. And that's not what would have happened before. So we're we're learning, you know, we're learning and we're adapting. And I think we'll take some of these lessons and carry them forward forever. Is that experience making exhibits a little bit like putting together IKEA furniture, which can be a bit frustrating at times, or do you guys have a pretty good system for that? Yeah, it depends on how well the instructions were written. Yeah, no, every every exhibit we do is unique. None of them have the same template. Uh, we have a lot of really dramatic cutaways. We created uh, essentially like a, a chemistry setup to decide the exact kind of stain, a formula for the stain of the wood so it looked just right, and then we had to cut it and burn it. And so all of these things, we can't have three and four people staining hundreds, literally hundreds of pieces of wood. So we had people in our, our conference room doing that. You know, we take over our VIP spaces to, to stain wood and we, you know, we made it work, but a lot of times there aren't instructions. It's go up and see how it fits and take it back down to the saw. So it's not always a perfect science, but it's, it's a lot of fun part of the process. Back to the Pulse exhibit then. So this is something that you started last year. Well, you know, we've done a remembrance exhibition for Pulse every single year uh, since it has happened, starting with 2017. And so we had a very large 2017 exhibition, a slightly smaller 2018 and 19. Uh, And then last year, we had fully designed and laid out a physical exhibition for the Pulse fourth year. And of course, you know, we start to install that in May. We start to fabricate that in April because it opens for June. So right as we're going into actually starting to run the printers and building things, we are headed towards the pandemic. And we had to really just sort of sit and and see what was going to happen, not knowing. And then we closed our doors um, for, you know, a period of time. We ended up, you know, opening in June, but we made the decision to, to go all virtual. And so that was a that was what we did in May was figure out how to build a website. That's not a, st- a skill that anybody on our staff, I mean, I have a little bit of that skill, but um, it wasn't the plan. And so figuring out how this very physically designed exhibit um, had to translate to be online. So we just had to be nimble like everybody else. And again, the pro to that was people from all over the world could see our exhibit in a way that they would not have been able to engage with it previously. So you know, ups and ups and downs, but this year we will be doing a physical, um, a physical large exhibition similar to our, our first year Remembrance exhibition this June. This one will be called Community, five years after the, the Pulse nightclub tragedy. So it's really, it's really centered around themes of, of community. What is the definition of community and how does that, how does that bring strength to us? Uh, and things like that. So, uh, it, you know, we'll we'll be announcing a lot more details about that very soon. We know that these exhibits are very well attended and people want to sort of be in that space and see all those memories, you know, of the, the vigils and the memorials and all the beautiful stuff that came after. And so we're really looking forward to being able to provide that. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that a lot of what history centers do is 
bringing to life things from the distant past, right? If you're, you know, whether you're creating a diorama from something thousands of years ago or, you know, maybe something just a couple of hundred years ago, but with an event like Pulse, it's a little bit different, right? You're curating things that people have lived through, so that memory is still quite fresh. What are the different challenges to those two approaches to uh, events and, and, and exhibitions? It's really different. There's similarities and differences, but with distant history, it's difficult for us to find items to collect and display. With recent history, it's difficult to decide which items. You know, they're all sort of at our at our fingertips. So making those decisions with distant history, we as historians have time to consider what rises to that level of collectible history, right? We've had some perspective on it. Um, but in terms of current history, we just have to use our intuition and look at trends from further back history to try to discern what's going to be important about this time 100 years from now. And, and doing, you know, this sort of contemporary or history, uh, contemporary history or history that's happening, um, there's a, you have to take into account also that being so recent, the trauma and the impact that can continue to have on people. Um, you know, time helps to heal wounds. It does not heal all wounds. Obviously, you know, still looking at things like the Holocaust or the Civil War can still be very incredibly painful um, to learn about, to see, but it's different when it's 150 years old as opposed to five years old and how it can impact the visitor. So those are all things we have to be really mindful of when we do these exhibits. We never want to re-traumatize somebody. We, we want people to come and learn, um, but to, you know, leave, leave in a, a better space than, than that, that they even came in uh, in terms of those events. So it's, it's definitely dynamic and it's something that we think about, you know, we'll spend an hour talking about one word in an exhibition because words are important. <laughs> um, you know, as, as you know, being in, in media that, you know, one word can make all the difference uh, for what you're saying and what you're trying to convey. Mm -hmm. Do you have to have trigger warnings sometimes for exhibits? Like, you know, maybe consider whether you want to go into this part of the exhibit or something? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the reason for the cabin I was talking about in Akoe, the cabin is, is sort of symbolic. The title's called Yesterday This Was Home, the Akoe Massacre of 1920. Uh, and that cabin um, is does have a, a little bit of symbolism, but at its heart is where does racism start? Well, it starts in the home most often. And so inside the cabin is where we put the most sensitive items in the exhibition, uh, images of lynchings, KKK items. And we have a disclaimer on the front. So we've created the exhibit in a way that you can go through the entire exhibit and you don't have to enter that space if you would like to skip it. And we let you know it's not uh, it's an addition to the interpretation, but it's not something that you'll be you know, missing out if you choose that it's not right for you. So we we do that because we want people to choose what's right for them. And you never know what. Um, what people are bringing to the exhibition with them in terms of their own past and their own feelings and thoughts. And so uh, it's always better to, to let the, the patrons and visitors just sort of make that, that choice. And, and we do the same thing for, for Pulse. We put a disclaimer at the very front. Uh, you know, I, I know mourning and grief can sometimes hit you at strange times. And so we try to give people those warnings, but we also try to give them space to, to work through that if they need to. So the museum's asking Central Floridians to submit photos, video, other digital content as part of the COVID-19 collecting project. Uh, when did you start the project and how was that going? Well, we started that in March of 2020. Um, the minute the, uh, the 
the virus hit the United States, we started having conversations about that. Um, we knew that eventually it was going to make its way to Central Florida, and we wanted to be be ready. And we wanted to offer people the opportunity. If everyone's sitting at home, <laughs> you know, what is that experience like? Are you helping your child with homework, or did you take up a new hobby? You know, we want to see this sort of what some people might consider the mundane moments of the pandemic, um, the same as these these bigger moments of going through the drive-through to vote right? Or having to sit in an emergency room under social distancing guidelines and, and, and all of these different things, right? There's a full spectrum of experiences people are having. And, and, you know, we never say that one is more important than the other, right? All of these things are interesting in how our entire community of Central Florida has had to respond or has chosen to respond to these, these events at this time. So, we, uh, it's, it's gone really well. We've gotten photographed. We've done a lot of oral histories um, with, with different individuals. Some of our earliest ones were with people who were stuck on cruise ships for days <laughs> that were from Central Florida and eventually made it, made it back. Um, and now, you know, we've done some with medical professionals. We've done some um, with different service providers, et cetera. But photographs, videos, people's journals of their experiences, um, you know, we don't know what exists for telling the story of this event later until we know about it. So sometimes we rely on our public to bring those things to our attention, which is, you know, why we created the online site for people to sort of self-submit ideas to the, the collection too. And of course, physical, physical things have to be quarantined. <laughs> when we bring in physical things, they go into a quarantine, which is not normal for our, our collecting, but here we are. So. And is there going to be a physical exhibit to go along with the COVID collecting project? I am certain at some point, you know, we, we aren't there yet because we're still going through it. Um, you know, you can do these urgent response exhibitions uh, as as these things are still unfolding and talking about what the experience has been like so far and getting participation. And then you can also do them after they're over, uh, I guess, if that's the right term to use when it when it is over, uh, to sort of reflect back on that and to get and to sort of almost have a little more historical or perspective or remove. Um, so we don't have anything specifically planned just yet, um, because a lot of the items we are planning to get to are also just promised right for now, or promised right now. We've not actually exchanged those things because some of them are still in the making or still being used. So I'm certain that at some point we will do that. And I don't know what we'll call that exhibit or exactly what will be included. Um, but that's sort of the reason we, we collect is to preserve the history and to be able to um, offer that in the form of exhibits to the community. What does the History Center have planned for Women's History Month? So uh, specifically this month, um, we we do a variety of different things. Um, March 18th, we're going to have our Women's History Celebration, which last year was the last event we did before everything went on lockdown. Uh, a lot of people have actually said to us, you know, your Women's History Brunch was the last event I did in public. Um, so this year it will be virtual, but you can go to our website to sign up for that. We'll be honoring uh, Mabel Norris Reese, who was a just a fearless wo uh, woman journalist uh, and really, you know, actually sort of went straight up against the Ku Klux Klan. So really interesting. So we do we do a, a virtual program so people can come and attend that as, as part of a fundraiser for the museum. We'll, you know, have a lot of social media things going on as well. And another big thing is we, we just launched our Women's History Internship. So we have, through uh, the generosity of some donors, uh, a paid women's history internship, and anybody is eligible to apply for that. Um, 
but it specifically will be working on a project to raise um, the stories of, of women uh, and how we interpret them in this institution and this region. So that's a pretty exciting thing that we're, we're launching for this month too. Mm-hmm. Just uh, in general, what do you think the future of the Orange County Regional History Center looks like? Do you have some big projects up your sleeve that you're hoping to roll out over the next couple of years? Oh, we have so many things happening, Matthew. You know, we're, we're still working on some of our timelines, but uh, there will be more information unfolding soon. We're, of course, redesigning all of the permanent galleries of the History Center, which means in over the next few years, we'll be opening uh, brand new exhibition spaces, brand new stories, new interactives, uh, all things that we have to uh, take into consideration, uh, given the new world we live in with COVID and things. But that's a, a very exciting project for us and making sure that all of our exhibits are much more reflective of our entire community's experience. Uh, so we're excited. We're going to be um, adding some event space around the museum. There's going to be some upgrades um, over time, of course, to Heritage Square out in front. So many exciting things happening. And, of course, two to three times a year we'll have uh, – different temporary exhibits happening as well. So lots of great things. And I know that you you just finished recently collecting uh, a lot of materials from WMFE, video cassettes and tape and other things. So a big project there to get that all sorted out, right? I mean, do you, I wonder too, because I've talked to you about this before, do you, do you have enough space to collect all of the stuff that you keep getting and, and people keep submitting to you? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're fortunate because we do have a large climate-controlled storage facility, and so we have a really great home for all of Central Florida's history and its preservation. And we did. We just took in a, much of the archives of WMSE, which we're very excited about. Spoiler alert, we'll be moving towards a new online digital infrastructure this fall. So we're going to have a whole new online interface which people can interact with us and with our collections. It's going to take some time. For us to work on and roll out, uh, but that's another big thing that we're very excited about because it's going to be really, really neat. So we we do we have space to grow, and that's good because history keeps happening. Well, Pamela Schwartz is the executive director of the Orange County Regional History Center. Pamela, um, congratulations on the new role, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for having me. And we look forward to seeing everybody when it's safe to do so. <laughs> Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health, production assistance for this week's show from Clarissa Moon. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.